Tonight I'd like to speak <coughs> about one factor of mind that plays a critical role both in the happiness of our daily lives, of our worldly lives, <coughs> and also in the possibility for awakening. And from one perspective we could say that the entire spiritual path rests <coughs> on the development and the cultivation of this one particular mind state. <coughs> and that is <coughs> the mental factor of equanimity. So equanimity is the English translation of the Pali word upeka. And it refers to what in the Abhidhamma, or the Buddhist psychology, is called one of the universal beautiful factors of mind which means that this factor is present in every wholesome state of mind. Just one, <coughs> one interesting sidelight. You know, in the categorization of, in the Abhidhamma, of wholesome and unwholesome mental factors, <coughs> for some reason, <coughs> they call the unskillful mind states unwholesome, but they call the skillful ones beautiful. So there's not that <laughs> uh, parody in terminology, which I always found interesting and uh, never have found out the reason why it's classified like that. But there's something <clears throat> that's very engaging about that. When we think about what it is that we're cultivating, we're cultivating these beautiful states of mind. And equanimity <coughs> is one of the universal beautiful states of mind. So it joins some other qualities such as faith and confidence and mindfulness, self-respect, non-greed, non-hatred. All of these are the beautiful universals. So equanimity, upeka, refers to a certain balance in the mind, it's called neutrality of mind. Bhikkhu Bodhi had a very uh, interesting translation of the Pali term, and it's a little awkward in English, but it conveys a sense of what the mind state, uh, of, how it, of how it functions. So he, he said that it could literally be translated, upeka, could literally be translated as there in the middleness. You know, so this is the quality of mind that's there in the middleness between extremes. And so this quality of evenness in the middleness, when it's very highly developed, when it's highly cultivated, brings about an unshakable quality of mind. Remember some weeks ago I mentioned uh, <coughs> Joseph Campbell's account of the Bodhisattva sitting under the Bodhi tree assailed by all the forces and Joseph Campbell's line describing it was and the mind of the great being was not moved. So that's the quality of unshakable equanimity. There's tremendous strength in that. 
But in understanding and exploring for ourselves the experience of equanimity, we need to take a little bit of care. Because when we speak of it in English as neutrality of mind, just the word in English, neutrality, (coughs) might suggest a kind of indifference or pulling away or apathy. And the neutrality might suggest being disconnected from what's happening. But this indifference or disconnection or apathy are really the near enemies <coughs> of equanimity, which means that there's states that can look like it, may have the appearance of equanimity but are actually unwholesome, unskillful imitations. So we don't want to confuse (coughs) the neutrality of equanimity with this disconnection. The Buddha described the mind filled with equanimity in this way. He described it as abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility and without ill will. You get a sense of the magnitude of this quality of mind, immeasurable, exalted, without ill will, without hostility. We can begin to get a sense of why it's called a beautiful state of mind. We begin to see that This quality of equanimity is not indifference at all, but rather it is a spacious impartiality. And impartial might be a better word describing the state of equanimity. It's not indifferent, it's impartial. be very difficult to overestimate the importance of equanimity, both in our practice and in our lives. So it's worth not only exploring it you know, in this talk and conceptually, but really begin to investigate it in your own experience. So you have <coughs> a first-hand tasting of what equanimity is like in the mind. So the first way we can look at it and experience it, this cool, restful, balanced quality of the mind, of equanimity, is in the peace and balance it brings to our everyday lives, just to how we're living in the world. Now each one of us is touched by what the Buddha called the eight great vicissitudes of life, the eight great changes of life. And he described it this way, these are the endlessly changing conditions of gain and loss, praise and blame, fame and disrepute, and pleasure and pain. And when we have equanimity in the mind, We ride these inevitable changes. 
with ease, with balance, with confidence. Without it, without equanimity, as we go through praise and blame and gain and loss and pleasure and pain, these, when we go through these inevitable changes without equanimity, it's like we're crashing into the changing circumstances of our lives. We need equanimity in order to have equilibrium in the face of these changes which happen to all of us. Now we can see the play of gain and loss in so many different arenas of our lives. We can feel it and we can experience gain and loss with particular vividness whenever we're invested in or attached to <coughs> particular outcome, invested in or attached to any situation where we take something to be I, where we take something to be mine. You know, it might be in the realm of material possessions or one's physical surroundings. So I'll just give you a couple of examples. Both the loss of and the regaining of equanimity in the face of gain and loss. When I first came back from India, uh, after spending quite a few years there, I was teaching at Naropa Institute the first summer session in Boulder in 1974. And this was the big, you know, this was the Buddhist Woodstock. And it was really the first time people from all over the country, several thousand people came. Um, this first great wave of interest in Eastern philosophy. So it was a very exciting time. So I came back and I was teaching a course uh, in meditation. And Naropa gave me this small one-bedroom apartment. Well, I was the first one back among all my India friends. So I came back and I began teaching. And they came back. Where to go? Well, Joseph has an apartment in Boulder. So all these friends from India kind of showed up in my apartment and moved in. And it wasn't just one person, <laughs> you know, or two people. I don't know, there must have been five or six people, you know, just camping out on the floor. And at first my mind was, um, shall we say, irritated? <laughs> or annoyed, or put out, or... You know, because I was fairly busy, I was working a lot, you know, it was a, it was a busy time, and you know, all these people crowding in my apartment, and so I could feel the loss of my space. You know, I had been living, I had my space and everything was nice and calm and even, and then there was a loss of something I had gained by getting it. But at a certain point in the midst of my seeing and experiencing my own distress, you know, I just started investigating it and realizing that the problem was that I thought of it as my apartment. And if I could give up the thought of this is my apartment and it just become a shared space like we had done countless times in India, 
where there was no problem at all. We were all just sharing in more crowded circumstances, sharing a space. No problem. The mind had come back to a place of ease. And so it's just so interesting. <clears throat> as soon as we're attached to something, you know, we're investing the sense of self or I or mine in it, and then we lose that, then we're in a state of mental turmoil, gain and loss. The example which I use often in these talks, I think it's my favorite example, of the potential for equanimity in the face of loss, is the story of the Zen poet and hermit and monk Ryokan, who used to live up in the mountains of Japan, very simple monk, very poor, he had almost nothing. You know, he just had this little hut with maybe his mat and his bowl, a few utensils. And he used to spend his time wandering around the villages, playing with the children. And one day he came back to his hut, and everything had been stolen. The few things he had had been stolen. So what did he do? He wrote a haiku. The moon at the window, the thief left it behind. Okay, so just imagine you're going back to your home, everything's stolen, the moon at the window, <laughs> the thief left it behind. Probably not. <laughs> Unless we had developed to a very great extent the power of equanimity, right? That power of impartiality, free of ill will, not buffeted by gain and loss, realizing <clears throat> that those changes are inevitable in one way or another. You know, another place where we can observe gain and loss, uh, particularly for those of you who are somewhat engaged or interested in the political process, and just watching how the political dramas played themselves out, can you notice the ups and downs of your mental states, you know, as various political views uh, gain power. When our own views are prevailing, you know, the mind becomes exhilarated. When opposite views are prevailing, so we get depressed, we get discouraged, gain and loss. It doesn't mean, equanimity here doesn't mean that we should disengage, but in this cycle of gain and loss, which happens in every arena of our lives, can we learn to respond to those cycles rather than be reactive? Can we actually respond from a place of connected equanimity rather than from a reactive mind of annoyance or irritation? Equanimity 
when we learn about it in our own minds, we see that it offers a great gift to compassion. Now, because compassion is that response of heart. Compassion is that response to suffering. Equanimity helps us to hold the compassion in balance so that we're not overwhelmed by the suffering. We can respond to it with evenness, with calm, with steadfastness, with patience. One uh, Chinese Zen master who actually lived to be 120, he got enlightened at age 56, his name was Su Yun, and he, then he taught from 56 to 120, which is quite amazing. And he used a phrase in his teachings, which I appreciate a lot. <clears throat> he talked of the long enduring mind. And his mind endured for quite a while, 120 years. But this long enduring mind suggests this quality of patience, of steadfastness, of equanimity through the changes, through the vicissitudes. That's what we need in our practice, in our lives. And especially here on retreat, we can see how gain and loss manifests right in terms of our own meditation practice and our self-assessment as yogis. You know, we have a good sitting or a good day. The mind's calm, it's concentrated, everything seems like it's going well. Gain. What happens? We expect it to stay. I'll just get up from the sitting now, I'll do some walking, and then it'll just pick up where I left off. You know, how often do we come back to the next sitting or the next day, and all that calm, all that concentration may be gone. And the mind is restless, and it's bored, and it's agitated, and the body hurts. Loss. How are we with this, <coughs> with this gain in loss? Very often, the mind is not in a place of equanimity, but the thoughts come, well, what did I do wrong? You know, what's, what happened with the practice? It was going so well and I must have made some mistake. Forgetting just the great law of change. It's not that we did anything wrong. Condition, conditions change, our experiences change, gain and loss. How are we with this? So an interesting I don't know, you might call it a meditative midterm exam. It's just to watch the mind. You know, as we go through the inevitable ups and downs of practice, really watch the response of the mind to it. You know, are we holding on to it staying a certain way? How are we when it feels like it's gain? Is there attachment? How are we when we feel we've lost something? Does the mind get discouraged, or in understanding gain and loss, inevitable. This is the process. We remain in that impartiality of equanimity. Equanimity is of such huge value in our lives. 
in creating an inner environment of ease, of balance. And we can also notice the reactivity of the mind in the face of praise and blame. You know, how do you feel when somebody praises you? It feels good. How do we feel when somebody's blaming us? It doesn't feel so good. Especially if it feels unjustified. But whether justified or not, we like praise, we don't like blame. And even more so if it's public. You know, then it really triggers something within us. I saw this deeply conditioned tendency very clearly <clears throat> when uh, I had just published the book One Dharma and it just come out, so this was <clears throat> quite a few years ago now. And the greatest praise, blame meter are the Amazon customer reviews. You know, five stars, one star, two stars. So these were some of the reviews that I read. And again, you know, kind of coming out of the book, it's like giving birth to something. You spend so much time and energy and effort and there, you know, you're presenting it to the world. So here were some of the reviews. Concise, enlightening, <clears throat> takes one to the core of Buddhism. I love it. A practical, enlightening book that is a pleasure to read. Okay, praise. Felt great. And then, one Dharma not emerging in this book, not as significant a book as the title might suggest. <laughs> and this is one of my favorite blame, <laughs> blame blurbs. <laughs> this is pretty silly stuff. <laughs> so from enlightening to silly in one move of the cursor. <laughs> Just click, click. So it was very interesting just, you know, to read this, and this was, you know, in the first weeks after it came out, and just to watch my own reaction, you know, when I was reading the, the praise stuff, oh, you know, I felt uplifted and happy, and, and then when I was reading the blames, oh, oh, <laughs> you know, I kind of felt like a knife in the heart. <laughs> but fortunately, you know, Dharma practice came to the rescue, and remembering the universal nature of praise and blame. Even the Buddha was praised and blamed. You know, this is just what happens. There's nobody who goes through life with only praise or with only blame. These are one of the vicissitudes. So in remembering that and calling that to mind after, after watching you know, the reactivity, Again, I began to see the humor in it all, and the mind came back to a place of equanimity. You know, this, this says this, this says that. And the heart was so much more easeful when equanimity was present. It's a place of peace. <coughs> so 
So the Buddha expressed this unwavering capacity <coughs> of equanimity in one of the verses of the Dhammapada. He said, as a solid mass of rock is not moved by the wind, so a sage is not moved by praise and blame. Just as a great rock is not moved by the wind, a sage is not moved by praise and blame. So the practice <coughs> of equanimity is not just on the cushion. You know, it's not just kind of a meditative thing to do. This is a quality of the heart, a quality of the mind that we want to practice in our daily lives. Because that's where these vicissitudes of gain and loss and praise and blame, that's where we're going to feel them a lot. It's important to remember <laughs> that the cultivation of this beautiful mind state of equanimity is a practice. It's not that we're going to be perfect with it and we'll be thrown off balance many times. But if we've had some taste of it, either in life or in meditation, and we remember the importance the Buddha gave to it in this whole path of awakening, then even when we've been thrown off balance, at a certain point we remember, oh yes, equanimity is possible. Let me come back to that place of impartiality. So the third pair of vicissitudes has to do with fame and disrepute. And really, these are just more generalized forms of praise and blame. But it's kind of interesting. I just, <coughs> just today, I read this article in a magazine about the growing fascination and attachment to fame in our culture. You know, and largely I think fueled by the internet, but just where our culture is uh, going. It said in 1976, people ranked being famous 15th out of 16 possible life goals. By 2007, 51% said it was one of their principal ambitions in life. Isn't that amazing? That 51% make fame one of the principal ambitions in life. Then went on to say in some survey, nearly twice as many said that they would rather be a celebrity's personal assistant than to be president of Harvard University. <laughs> <laughs> You think we're missing something? <laughs> so it's very seductive. There's something seductive about it, you know. And we can see that by those statistics. So it's just helpful. Uh, I don't think probably most of you fall into that 51%. But to whatever extent, you know, you see kind of, well, there's an allure of fame you know, in a fear of disrepute. I think it's helpful just to investigate a little bit more and to realize that fame and disrepute 
really only exist in other people's minds. It doesn't have anything to do with us, really. It's just what's happening in the minds of other people. And if we are well established, you know, in the non-remorse of sila, if we know in ourselves, if we're connected, you know, with our own inner integrity, then fame and disrepute, we're unmoved by that. It doesn't matter, you know, because we see that it's just projections of other people's minds. And so we stay free of that entanglement. So the last pair of the vicissitudes, the changes, which perhaps is the most <coughs> significant for us, and in which we can see pretty clearly our non-equanimous response, is the alternation, the inevitable alternation of pleasure and pain, or happiness and sorrow in our lives. For almost all of us, there is this deeply habituated conditioning. It almost seems hardwired that we want to have and to hold on to what's pleasant, and we want to avoid or push away what's unpleasant. What's so interesting as we explore this is that it seems so natural. You know, say, well, of course I want what's pleasant and want to avoid what's unpleasant. It just seems like the natural response uh, to these experiences. And because it seems so natural and is so deeply habituated, it's really only in the context of a retreat like this, or perhaps other special circumstances, where we even take the time to investigate this conditioning. You know, what is this conditioning about of wanting the pleasant and avoiding the unpleasant? And it needs a special circumstance, it needs this laboratory which you're all in. That's what I love about retreats. It's, it's just like a laboratory of the mind, you know, and you're all in there investigating, exploring how it's all working. In that investigation, we can begin to at least glimpse or taste other possibilities beside the attachment to the pleasant and the avoidance of the unpleasant. He really summed this up in one of his teachings. He said, you only want good experiences. You don't want even the tiniest unpleasant experience. <coughs> Is this fair? Is this the way of the Dhamma? It's precisely this attachment to the pleasant and resistance to the unpleasant that keeps us on the roller coaster of hope and fear. You know, we hope the unpleasant will go away. We're afraid that it won't go away. We hope the pleasant will come. We're afraid that it won't come. So as long as this conditioning is prevalent in our lives, we're continually buffeted in our reactions 
in our reactivity, hope and fear, hope and fear. With increasing clarity and wisdom and mindfulness, we see that these changes of pleasant and pain, of happiness and sadness, these these changes are not a mistake. It's in the nature of condition-changing phenomena. It's not that pleasant feelings go away because we've done something wrong. If only I hadn't done that, then the pleasant feelings would have remained. That's magical thinking. Pleasant feelings don't go away because we've done something wrong. They go away because everything goes away. Everything has the nature to, it, to change. It's so interesting that all of us know this on some level. But it's quite amazing how in our practice and in our lives, there's also some place in us that doesn't believe it. You know, we think that we should be able to hold on, to maintain, oh yes, just let it be pleasant. Or let things not get unpleasant. So something I mentioned, I think, <coughs> some weeks ago, a mantra that has been very helpful to me in bringing the mind back to equanimity in the face of these changes of pleasure and pain, whether physical or mental. <clears throat> I think I was describing to you that hiking accident, you know, and then I couldn't, I couldn't walk for a while. And the, the mantra that came to mind after I had spent some time with a lot of self-judgment and self-blame, just reminding myself, anything can happen anytime. Anything can happen anytime. And what was so striking, I think I emphasized this, this little mantra, anything can happen anytime, was not a place of fear. It wasn't a place of defensiveness. Oh my God, anything can happen anytime. And you know, so retreat into, no. It was a reminder of what's true. And I found that my heart relaxed. You know, as unpleasant things came and I just reminded myself, yes, anything can happen anytime. That's just the nature of things. And in remembering that, the mind stopped struggling and stopped fighting with it. It stopped thinking, oh, if only I had done something differently. It's in this remembrance that the mind comes to a place of equanimity in the face of these changes because it is just the nature of things. So again, this is from the Buddha. Praise and blame, gain and loss, pleasure and sorrow, they come and go like the wind. Just a beautiful image. You know, all these changing conditions, they just come and go like the wind. <laughs> to be happy, stand like a great tree in the midst of them all. You know, it's a beautiful image and, you know, sometimes, you know, on a windy day you can see these big trees and 
the branches are waving, but the tree is just standing firm. What would it be like to have that quality of equanimity in the face of all these inevitable changes? You know, there's gain, there's loss, there's praise, there's blame, there's fame, there's disrepute, there's pleasure, there's pain. And the mind remains unmoved, unshaken. It's feeling all that, it's being with it, it's not disconnected. But it's holding it all in a space of steadfastness, of equilibrium, of non-reactivity of impartiality. So the first type of equanimity is this evenness and composure in the midst of all these changes. But equanimity also takes many forms. The second kind of equanimity is that quality of mind that's developed uh, in the Brahma Viharas. It's one of the divine abodes. You know, metta, loving-kindness, compassion, empathetic joy, and equanimity. And what's interesting is to see that it's precisely the quality of equanimity that makes all the others immeasurable. It's because our mind is impartial that we can extend metta and compassion and mudita, empathetic joy, to people we like, to people we don't like, to benefactors, to the difficult people. What gives these other Brahma-viharas their immeasurable aspect? It's precisely the wisdom of equanimity. It's that quality of being impartial. So it suffuses right, love, and it suffuses compassion, and it confuses, suffuses joy with this vastness that includes all. You know, it's expressed in a short haiku poem by, I think it's by Isa, where he said, in the cherry blossom's shade, there's no such thing as a stranger. You know, so that's that quality of openness, impartiality. In the cherry blossom's shade, there's no such thing as a stranger. And we see this at work in some people who have both this highly developed compassion and love and also equanimity in the sense of impartiality. There's no prejudice, there's no bias. See it in people like the Dalai Lama or you know, in one of our teachers like Deepama, whose hearts were just so open and so connected, treating everyone equally, treating everyone impartially. It's amazing to see people, you know, manifesting in that way, the beauty of it and the power of it. The Dalai Lama said, I try to treat everyone I meet as an old friend. That would be a great way to go through life, you know, to try to treat everyone we meet as an old friend. What does that take? It takes this quality of impartiality which is another word for equanimity. So equanimity as the balance in the vicissitudes of life, equanimity as one of the Brahma-viharas, which suffuses them with their immeasurable quality, 
And the third manifestation of equanimity takes us really deep into the meditative experience, the wisdom aspect. And this was expressed by the really very succinctly and clearly by the third Zen ancestor in a teaching called On the Faith Mind, where he, he wrote, the great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. When attachment and aversion are both absent, everything is clear and undisguised. The great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. When attachment and aversion are both absent, everything is clear and undisguised. So, it's a very clear, although challenging teaching. Right? The great way, or the way of awakening, the way of enlightenment. manifests when the mind uh, is suffused with this quality of equanimity. The Buddha, in a way, said it even stronger, and I love this teaching because it just makes me sit up straight. (laughs) (laughs) Where the Buddha said, as long as there's attachment to the pleasant, an aversion to the unpleasant, liberation is impossible. So that's quite a statement. And we probably all have a little bit of work to do anyway. (laughs) And there's no attachment to the pleasant or aversion to the unpleasant. So this is the practice of the great way, the equanimity of non-preferential awareness where we're able to sit and walk and be with our experience, we might say, with a mirror-like awareness, mirror-like wisdom, where it's aware of whatever is arising, pleasant or unpleasant, gross or subtle, where we're simply aware of what's arising without attachment if it's pleasant, without aversion if it's unpleasant. And in this openness, with this quality of equanimity, of impartiality, of non-reactivity, this is really the the wisdom, the, the foundation of wisdom in our lives. When we can abide, even for short periods, it's not that this obviously is going to be perfect. We're all on the path and we're all practicing it and we'll fall off into reactivity many times. But can we come back again and again, beginning again, you know, established in this equanimity? In this space of impartiality, we begin to see with greater and greater clarity the three characteristics. When the mind is not reactive, when it's not holding on or pushing away, we see so clearly that everything is arising and passing away. We see it on the macro level, we see it on the micro level, the moment-to-moment level. At this point, our practice is more concerned with the process of change than with the content of what's arising. 
You know, so often in our lives and in our meditation, we get so enmeshed and judgmental and assessing of what it is that's arising, the content of our stories and our emotions and our thoughts. But when there's equanimity in the mind and we drop into this place of settling back and simply seeing everything arising and passing away, the content gets less and less important. In fact, the content becomes increasingly boring. And what becomes much more interesting is our increasingly refined awareness of the process of change itself. That's what our mind begins to attune to. We're seeing that whatever arises is also passing, 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 passing. And this is the deepening of our practice, which is made possible through equanimity, through impartiality. I think I've mentioned several times the teaching of the Buddha and you know, where many people got enlightened just hearing it, he said, whatever has the nature to arise will also pass away. So we know that conceptually, but are we seeing it? Have we dropped into our practice where that's the focus of our practice? Seeing that whatever's arising, a thought, a sensation, an emotion, a sound, it doesn't matter. Whatever's arising is also passing away to pay attention to that aspect because it's in seeing the passing away that the mind doesn't cling. And when the mind doesn't cling, it's not agitated, and when it's not agitated, as the Buddha said, it personally experiences Nibbana. So all of this comes from equanimity, from non-reactivity. Not only do we see the impermanence, but out of this impartial quality of mind, we have such a direct and immediate understanding of the truth of dukkha. We just see the unreliability of phenomena. Now, it's not that it's always painful, because sometimes it's pleasant, so dukkha doesn't simply mean pain. It means unreliable. There's no security. Why? Because everything is changing. And it becomes so clear. And we see the empty, selfless, insubstantial nature of it all. Begin to see that things things are changing and moving so rapidly, nothing lasts long enough to be called self. And even as we're with what's arising, we are really seeing the conditioned, ephemeral nature. Phenomena You know, as you've heard many times, everything arises out of causes and conditions. It doesn't have any substantial inherent reality other than the appearance coming from various conditions coming together. So the, you know, just a beautiful and accessible image to understand this is when we see a rainbow. You know, the experience of seeing the rainbow is very vivid. It's colorful and it makes us feel happy generally. It's beautiful. But then when we investigate a little bit, we see that there is no, there's no thing which is the rainbow. 
The rainbow is simply an appearance of certain conditions of water and light and air. You know, these conditions come together in a certain way and a rainbow appears. Well, self, this notion of self is like a rainbow. We're all, we are all rainbows. There is an appearance and the appearance is vivid and we see it. So it's not to deny the appearance, but when we investigate the nature of this appearance, we see that there's nothing substantial there. As Manindraji would say so many times and really got integrated in my awareness, just many, many times he would describe the whole process Empty phenomena rolling on. Empty phenomena rolling on. It's just, it's just this rolling on of mind-body phenomena. Empty of substance, empty of self. So as one Tibetan teacher said in describing the notion of self, but it refers to rainbow and refers to all appearances. But somebody asked this Tibetan teacher, you know, is the self real? And he said, yes, the self is real, but not really real. <laughs> so that's how we have to hold it. It's not denying the appearance of it all, you know, because the appearance is vivid. We see the rainbow and we respond to it. So it's real on that level, but it's not really real. There's no thing which is the rainbow. It's just an appearance arising out of conditions, changing as the conditions change. So as we open to these three characteristics through the stability of equanimity, of impartiality, of non-reactivity, we go through various stages, you know, of insight and meditation. And the meditation Vipassana insight matures in a state or a stage called equanimity about formations. You know, where we go through all kinds of pleasant and unpleasant experiences, but then at a certain point as the mind and the factors of enlightenment ripen and they stabilize, we enter into this phase of equanimity, profound equanimity about all, all formations, everything that's arising. The mind is just not moved in the face of what's pleasant or what's unpleasant. And it's actually, the stage of equanimity is said to resemble the mind of an arhant. So even well before we actually become fully liberated, we can actually taste the freedom, the peace, you know, the joy of the arhant-like state of mind, which is this place of equanimity. And one of the Thai Ajans, Ajahn Jamnian, described it very clearly. He said, at some point the mind becomes so clear and balanced that whatever arises is seen and left untouched Whatever arises is seen and left untouched with no interference. One ceases to focus on any particular content and all is seen as simply mind and matter, an empty process arising and passing away of its own, a perfect balance of mind with no reactions. There is no longer any doing. 
this is the quality, the ripening, the maturing of this quality of equanimity. And it's out of this, out of this balance that the mind then, when all the conditions are right, can open to the unconditioned, what's beyond the conditioned, to Nibbana. So of all the ten perfections, you know, that are taught in terms of the perfections of a Buddha, perfections of generosity and morality and renunciation, <coughs> wisdom, diligence, patience, truthfulness, resolve, metta and equanimity, it said that patience and equanimity are the mainstay of all the others. Lady Sayadaw, the great Burmese master, he wrote that, when, that only when we have set ourselves up with patience and equanimity can we expect to fulfill the rest. So I like that because it, it kind of, you know, the list of ten may seem overwhelming. You know, how am I, I going to ever manage to do all of them? But it, it kind of narrowed it down for us. If we're patient, and we develop this quality of equanimity, of impartiality, you know, of openness to whatever is arising, then all the rest will follow. You know, and in one way the Buddha summed all this up when he said, there's no higher happiness than peace. And the experience of equanimity gives us a taste of this peace. Let's just sit for a few moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.